Welcome, friends. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with author Zen Monk and founder of the Ithaca Zen Center, Yoshin David Radin. Sylvia Borstein, co-founder of Spirit Rock Meditation Center, described his new book, A Temporary Affair, like this. These short discourses by an old Zen priest facing his possible imminent death are relaxed and friendly in tone. They speak to the heart of human suffering, the confusion that comes from not understanding what is clearly available for us to feel directly and be liberated. It is a book I keep on my bedside table at close hand when I need a dose of encouragement. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Yoshin David Radin. You can read an excerpt from A Temporary Affair on Tricycle's website. See the episode notes for a link. If you enjoy our conversation, please share this episode and subscribe. To learn more about Buddhism through my free courses or my book for beginners, The Buddhist Path to Joy, please see the episode notes. May you and all beings be well. I started by asking David to share his story with us. I had lived a pretty normal life going through school, going through college, about to go to graduate school. And I took a year off from school. And with money I had earned at Cornell, I basically bought a ticket around the world and ended up at one point in uh, some kind of den <laughs> in Thailand and uh, was smoking chillums mm. with, with some uh, some genre of American hippie that I had never beheld before. <laughs> Are chillums pot? It's a pipe. It's a okay. pipe. We, we were smoking some something. <laughs> something. It, what, and, what year approximately is this? This was 1969. Okay. And um, at some point, my brain started to melt, it seemed, mm -hmm. and my memory started to dissolve. And I, I could see that my existence as David was recorded in a memory system in the brain and that it was going to be erased. And, and that became terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I was shaking in the terror of where am I, what am I, I don't know. There's no way I could ground. Mm -hmm. And one of the people there said to me, why don't you just lie down and get it over with? <laughs> so I, I lay down. And you know, a minute later, I was looking at this corpse on the ground. It wasn't a corpse in the sense that it was dead. It was just, I was looking at it from the outside. Mm -hmm. And that ended my normal life. At some point, I, I saw that and thought, why, why am I investing in a life mm -hmm. of something that isn't my ultimate identity? It just mm -hmm. appeared like that. So instead of going to law school, I ended up on a hippie commune. 
my family disinherited me. <laughs> and uh, I was happy as a clam. <laughs> and, and, and then that path of entry dried up at some point. And I realized that the, the price, it was a losing bargain to continue mm -hmm. with drugs. Mm -hmm. but, but I had no idea at all that there was any way to even approach it. I had no exposure to Dharma teachings. I had no exposure to true spiritual teachings. I had, I had nothing to base it on. As a matter of fact, when I came back from that trip, I thought maybe it was somehow connected to Plato and Aristotle, what I had experienced. So I tried reading all of that. I went to graduate school in uh, philosophy for wow. a week, for a week. <laughs> and then that wasn't it. That was just talk. Yeah. So then, then I went to apply for the, to be, uh, somehow I thought maybe it was connected to some form of rabbinical study that I had no idea existed. So mm. I actually went to apply for, to go to a theological seminary in New York mm. City. And I went to the interview and the application and they told me, boy, we can give you some advanced placement because you have all this background, very sophisticated background in Judaica. <clears throat> and they asked me if I wanted to be a congregational rabbi or if I wanted to be a teaching rabbi. And I said, I want to be a rabbi who met God. That's what I said to them. I, I want to see what I saw. I know something deeper is inside. I have no idea how to access it. Mm -hmm. And I want to know if you teach that. And they said, sorry, wrong place. So that was the end of my rabbinical career. Wow. And it's, it's remarkable that they were just honest. You know, we don't teach that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't expect anything. I might as well make sure that all the wells were dry, that, that, that there wasn't anything from my past that had any connection to my current state. Yeah. You know, so I can't remember. I had a good friend who I was visiting in San Francisco. She was for 13 years my best friend as a friend, completely friendly. And now my wife for 35 years, but 13 years without a kiss. Wow. <laughs> and she said, why don't you try San Francisco Zen Center? And I had no idea. And it's really not a good transition from drugs to session. It's a little bit too big a jump because you, your mind is very unstable mm. when you're roller coastering. You may see glorious visions, but when you have to sit there for days and days, and my body wasn't ready, so I thought mm, Zen's not. But then I started sniffing around and that sort of thing. And eventually in 76, met uh, Joshi Sasaki, who was my teacher, who became my teacher. And I, at that point, I was. I had spent enough years considering suicide 
because of the hopelessness of not being able to attain and yet knowing it was the truth. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I was stuck between the worlds and couldn't find a home. Oh, man. Yeah. And that made me desperate enough to try another session. It wasn't that that was, I had chosen the path of Zen. It was that these were what showed up. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't like looking at Zen or Tibetan Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever. And I did session with Sasaki Roshi and doing the first session with him. But by the intensity of the session and really his incredible power to transmit that state, mm. that for the first time it came back and was with me. And um, I said, okay, it can be done. And I, I am going to devote my life to that. And when you say that state, is there anything else you can say about it in words, or is it just the, the mind? No, the mind knowing it's not the body. Mm. The mind experiencing and knowing that the body is not the identity, mm. basically, and the mind knowing that it is the identity. Mm. It's been calling itself a body, but the mind is the mind. Mm. Oh. It's a, you know, mind sees itself, something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, at that point, had some children. And uh, funky craft work that I did to support. And over the years, I spent a lot of training with Roshi, Sasaki Roshi. But I, I never resided in his monastic communities because I had a family. I wasn't abandoning my family. Plus, yeah, there's a part of me that didn't like the formalities of his practice. It was it was it was forms that supported his teaching mm -hmm. and he could you know there were his forms from japan he didn't say that you had to use those forms but he was using them because he was too old to to mess around with that stuff mm -hmm. and so you'd have to meet him in that that way do you know what i'm saying yeah you i do take take the forms don't take them seriously but this is what I got to have. Yeah. It seems like every culture has its forms that are used to transmit. And right. everyone can get stuck on those forms. But Right. Yeah. So m my heart form was hippie life. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't monastery life. <laughs> but, hey, man, it's cool. <laughs> Take it easy. <laughs> Just for those who are not familiar, because some people listening or, or watching might be more familiar maybe with Tibetan or Theravadan styles, Zen can be quite strict and, and very, you know, there's a way that you eat, there's a way that you fold everything that, I mean, this has been my experience. So from, right. from a hippie commune right. to a strict Zen practice sounds like quite a, a change. 
I was willing to do it because of the experience I had with his training. Mm -hmm. But as I became a little bit more self-reliant, then I felt free to adapt. Mm -hmm. Because if you see the point of the practice, then you can establish forms that are in harmony with that. Mm -hmm. But you can create forms that are appropriate to your situation or the people who are practicing with you. You don't have to say, Here, here's my, here's a, this is my teaching, this is the tradition, this is how it must be done. You don't have to do that. You can just say, this is how we're going to do it. I, I feel like what you're, what you're talking about right now is kind of like at the heart of so many of the debates or discussions I've had with, you know, friends and, and fellow, you know, instructors, how do you transmit what's authentic without getting stuck in forms that are coming from a very different culture and time? I'm just curious to kind of, to pause the story and to just ask how, what forms have you created now in your own teaching? Forms that I'm not embarrassed about. <laughs> Where you're not imposing a way of doing things because that's the way it's done. Mm -hmm. You're using forms that are most helpful to people. When, when you have, when you start to become more comfortable with, with the view, with the experience, it really starts to kind of seep into your being. Mm -hmm. um, you're not relying on form. Mm -hmm. You can enter through a bird song. Mm -hmm. You can enter through walking. You can enter anytime you stop and realize that you're illuminated. Doesn't the form that you're in when you experience that is, you know, empty of self is the term. Mm -hmm. So you can feel free to, this is, you, you know what you're trying to, uh, awaken your student to you. You know what you're trying to have them see. Mm -hmm. But you can also see the student and see this looks like where we can connect. This is looks like where we can go mm -hmm. like that. In other words, you have, if you're comfortable with yourself, then you can use the forms. If you're not comfortable with yourself, then you become attached to the forms. It seems like that element of experience, like you said, really, you know, steeping, letting the view inform, I don't even know how to say it, but, you know, it seems like that element of personal experience kind of makes the difference between just um, transmitting a form without thinking about it, or because this is how it's done, we have to keep doing it. And also letting go of all these forms and not necessarily having something that can hold that transmission to, to bring it to the students. When it's alive, it's much juicier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when you're teaching people forms and hitting them because the napkin's a quarter inch from the left, you know. <laughs> It, it may be that'll work in a society of some sort, mm -hmm. 
but it's not appropriate for Americans. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are coming into the practice in America. We don't have a monastic tradition in America. Right. And I'm not from a monastic tradition. Mm -hmm. So if you try to create a monastic environment for practice, then yeah, it's, it's not necessary. You have to, here's the essence. This is what you're trying to realize. And the path is conducting or, you know, the path is making yourself available for this experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they take it, they take what they can get. You know, some people, you can create glimpses of transcendence in them. <clears throat> and some people, you can just hang out. <laughs> some people, I, I, I think American society is, I don't know American, maybe internet or everywhere, but the society is no, no longer supporting, is less supportive of real spiritual insight than it was before because people don't, before people can move from action to silence or action to quiet, they have to pass through a computer mm. or an iPhone. Mm -hmm. So instead of just going into a quiet space, they go into an iPhone space. Mm -hmm. Remarkably so. So it's a little bit harder that way. But, you know, what is, is. You can't. Rick is an interesting example, you know, for he had a career. He's a clarinetist, the teacher. Beautiful heart. And we had a, we had that connection because he surrendered to me. In other words, he would absorb. But there aren't so many people who will just say, I'm here to absorb. Mm. People say, I want to be a really good meditator or something, <laughs> something, something vicious like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, this is sparking so many thoughts and so many questions. I don't want to keep interrupting your story. Um, Maybe you could just share, you know, how did you, how did you become a monk and how did you become a teacher then? Fraudulently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a fraudulent monk. Um, what, ha what happened was. <laughs> I should just say, you mentioned that you're married. In Zen, monks can be married. I just want to say that for anyone who's confused. <laughs> I think the first thing you should say is that there's no such thing as Zen. So therefore, <laughs> you know, if you want to talk about the rules and precepts, that's okay. But rules and precepts, I haven't, I'm not, you know, having, having wandered through 613 commandments, you don't mind a few precepts. <laughs> different, different energy commandment than precepts. 
And Roshi, my teacher, said precepts aren't precepts. Precept is an imitation of how the enlightened mind would act. And you don't have it, but this is how it would show up. So therefore, show up like that. And it will support you. Oh, that's beautiful. But it, so it might, it, I, I started practicing with Roshi in 76. And in 1977, he decided to start this program called Seminar on the Sutras, which was a, I don't know, three, four something week program where distinguished professors from Japan and Buddhist American professors would lecture on Buddhism and, there would, and he would offer a session before it and after it. And that was a comprehensive academic practice situation. And um, <clears throat> it was running for three years at uh, Mount Baldy, which was my teacher's monastery in the mountains outside of Los Angeles. And then it just fell through. And I happened to be there when it kind of fell through. And I said, I bet I could put this together at Cornell. I have connections from the old days. <laughs> a, a, a funny, a funny story. <laughs> I, when I was in the senior senior year at Cornell, I was the editor of the newspaper. So I was a kind of big man on campus, you know. BMOC was the word. <laughs> And then I knew, you know, I was on friendly relationships with the presidents and the president and the vice presidents of the university because I would write stories and do this and that. Then I went traveling for a year and I came back and after these brief moments of trying to find a background in my tradition for what was going through, I gave up and moved out to this hippie commune, which I lived at on and off for about 12 years. And there were no no telephone, no electricity, no running water. It was in the backwoods. And the way I could support myself was I would make banana bread and go and sell it. So, well, there's a bridge that goes over one of the canyons or gorges at Cornell. It takes you into college towns. It was a college town bridge. And on the side of it was a grassy knoll. And I would spread out a blanket and spread out my banana breads. This is two years after editor of the newspaper. <laughs> and the dignitaries from Cornell, who I knew, <laughs> would see me sitting on the ground selling banana bread. <laughs> They would look, and I, I can't even express the look that would come, but it was like, what would you waste a college education on this kid? <laughs> and I would say, excuse me? When you graduated Cornell, you were law school bound, so this is a big turnaround. <laughs> yeah, and they would say, have that look on them, and I would look up at them and smile and say, I won. 
<laughs> that was a fun time. <laughs> anyway, I can't remember where we were. I was what we were talking you were, about. But. You were thinking you could put together this sort of academic sutra study course at Cornell. Ah, okay. There. So, yeah. So then in 79, it didn't work out. In 80, I went back. I was living in Ithaca with my family and had started a Zen center for my own practice and other people. And I went to Cornell and said, you know, I'd like to offer would you be interested in a summer school program of this sort? And I, I said, and we would provide all the academics. All you would need to do would be to accredit it. And these people have a lot of credentials. And then I said, and since it's also connected with Zen practice, I was hoping you might be able to do it at a rate that would enable people to come to a program like that who weren't wealthy Ivy League kind of people, but who were interested in this very unusual and potentially significant program. And they said, okay. So we rented a fraternity house and turned part into a Zendo and part was academic. And then there were rooms for people to stay in. It was really an ideal setting. And it was it was very successful. So when we were doing the program, this is how I got fraudulent non-status, monk status. <laughs> so so the staff uh, the staff of the program was Roshi's monks from Mount Baldy. At one point, Roshi came over to me and said. We, we need to talk about something. His wife was translating. We need to talk about something. I said, of course. He said, in, in my tradition, it would never happen that a lay person would be in charge of a monk. We would never do that. And I understand that you're the only one who can run the program. But I would like you to become a monk so that the structure of the whole functioning was appropriate from my tradition. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at him and I said, Roji, hair okay? <laughs> I had long hair. <laughs> hair okay? Roji said, yeah, hair okay. I said, Rosie, sex okay? I'm married. No, sex okay? <laughs> yeah, sex okay. And, and then I, I can't remember what else. I said something else, and he said, yeah, okay. So, so then I said to him, well, then what does it mean to be a monk? So he was thinking about it, you know, he was trying to express and he was, uh, and his wife was standing there waiting to translate. And Roshi would go, no, 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 And so he was going like that, trying, and I, to me it was hysterical. That my teacher 
couldn't define what a monk was. <laughs> so at one point, when he was in this lengthy, unsuccessful <laughs> attempt to define what, what a monk was, I blurted out, janitor. And his wife looked at me and started giggling as if it was the stupidest thing that she had ever heard in her whole. <laughs> and she said, what, 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 And she goes, and he looked at me and he said, exactly. And so then I said, okay, I'll become a monk. And he ordained me kind of right then. So I became a monk to prevent a scandal. <laughs> and that was how I became a monk. And then later he, later he ordained me as a priest later on. What has it meant to you to be a monk and, and then a priest? Nothing. <laughs> It's not a it's not about credentials. It's about willing to to surrender self-importance. Mm. It's willing to just flow with life. You, mm -hmm. You're you're no longer seeking fulfillment in anything external because you know you're going to lose it. And so your heart becomes soft and miserable, and, <laughs> and that's your life, you know. It's not like, oh, now I'm a monk. Oh, now I'm an Osho. No. It doesn't have meaning. It doesn't have, to me, meaning like that. To me, that, that kind of... It's a good segue to your book, A Temporary Affair, um, mm. because, you know, it just feels like what I'm getting from the story of your life is, you know, from the time that you had that experience in Thailand of, of smoking and just having this experience of, that's not me. That body is not me. All the stuff I'm building, all the memories in my brain, it's all going to get deleted someday. You know, to just not taking that role of monk and, and teacher as a super heavy thing, it, it just, it makes me think about that sense of, you know, it's temporary. This is temporary. That's temporary. So I'm just wondering, you know, I know that a temporary affair, it's a collection of, of teachings, basically. Um, and in the praise by Sylvia Borstein, you know, she writes about, it's, it's you reflecting on the inevitability of death. And I, I just wonder, you know, we've talked about some of your story. What, what has practice done for the way that you think about death, which comes for us all? Practice isn't a good word. Mm. In this instance, it's not that practice does it. It's a little bit like 
if you're going to go to New York, how would you practice going there? <laughs> right? So you practice, but then you see New York. Oh, that's New York. And, <clears throat> yeah, you, you practice making yourself available for death. You, you, you carry a, a death with you to a certain extent. You know? I, I frequently tell people how sick society is because the basic attitude is that death is the most horrible thing that could happen to you. So now you're living. Look, look what the foundation of your life is. It can't acknowledge it at all. And so you're just in this horrible state where you're headed inevitably towards the most horrible experience imaginable. Yeah. How can you make heads or tails out of that? Mm -hmm. I guess you run for president. <laughs> Might as well run for president. <laughs> At least they'll remember me after I'm done. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, the, the ramifications, uh, the ramifications of the, the seeing keep amplifying. They keep you keep start seeing little bits and pieces of things that are just so utterly exquisite that you can't. Uh, it's like living in a state of bored astonishment. Mm, bored astonishment. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> no, because on the one hand, on the one hand, there's nothing that can have any effect on you, mm -hmm. on the truth. No, no, nothing can affect the Dharma. The Dharma is, you know, this, this is birth and death. The Dharma is, <clears throat> there is within us an illuminating essence that's not contained within the body-mind matrix. So you, that's always the context. But then you start looking at the miraculous functioning of the universe. And it's just, you're speechless. And how can you, how can you describe how much it takes for a human form to arise, to have all these functions in it, that it can create and see the universe of, space and time and everything, you know, it's, it's mind-boggling. And was there something we were talking about? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I think I asked how, you know, how practice had helped you prepare for death, which I, I think you answered beautifully. Um, but, but also, also, the, what is the practice? The practice is training the mind not to react to psychological or circumstantial events. Mm -hmm. It's teaching you to cultivate tranquility. And the cultivation of tranquility is the non-reaction 
to the mind, non reaction to the sense world. So it's not it's not that you're inert, but it doesn't produce an emotional response. So for example, you know, when I was in the end stages of kidney failure and it got it even got a little messier than it was supposed to get because my daughter was donating a kidney to me. And they didn't want to start dialysis because the kidney transplant was so imminent that they didn't want to have to do an extra surgery to make the body a portal for dialysis. I didn't even know if I would have gone that route. But anyway, um, my daughter at the last minute, they found a protein conflict that there was... It really couldn't work because the bloods weren't harmonious enough or whatever it is. And so then another friend offered a kidney, but that process took about six weeks. She was fast-tracked because they knew. And then they finally gave up and had to put me on dialysis. And there were some funny things about that because they told me that they had to do dialysis because I was so weak um, that I wasn't strong enough to endure the transplant surgery. And I was feeling perfectly okay. I didn't think I was even sick. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? I'm fine. <laughs> they said, you don't know. So that aspect of the Dharma, uh, that, that the feeling of everything is okay, never deserts you or doesn't, you know, because you're not reacting to the circumstance with wanting it to be some other way desperately or this or that. So they had to do a quickie a quickie um, transplant um, dialysis thing just to, just to recover enough to get the transplant. And during that time, there was a lot of emergency room visits because it had gone a little bit further than it would ordinarily have gone, but they thought every day the transplant is going to happen. And, and I, write, I write about that in the book about how happy I was in the emergency room because here I was in this situation where people, you know, hurry, hurry, they'll come up, blah, 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 you know. And I was just happy. And that was the grace of the Dharma. And I felt it as the grace of the Dharma. You can call it also the grace of your own being, but it's not your being as an individual, it's the grace of you know. So it's not that I experienced the grace of the practice. It didn't occur to me in that form that I had sat in meditation, therefore I could be comfortable in this precarious situation. It wasn't like that. It was just like, oh, 
beautiful is the mind when it knows itself. That's all. I feel like you're you're really getting at a distinction between I'll just take myself as an example. You know, myself as like a beginner Buddhist or, you know, beginning meditator, it felt like meditation was a thing I had to do, you know, that there was this whole process of like training my mind, taming the mind, something like that. And the longer I practice, the less it feels like meditation is a doing. I, yeah. I appreciated um, in your article, The True Path on Tricycle, which is an excerpt from your book. I appreciated the way you wrote about you know, Zazen is like a sinking into, like a sinking into your being. I think there's a lot in the Tibetan tradition that echoes that as well. And I'm just curious, you know, can you, can you explain that a bit? Um, what you mean by that sinking into? A sinking into is when the awareness intimately penetrates the experience of the body which is it's like you're making love to yourself it's like the awareness is making love to the breathing and the breathing is making love to the awareness the awareness is fully penetrating the experience and the awareness slows down through the breathing kind of slows down and relaxes to, to, to be together, unified. And then the body relaxes in that way, the relaxing. It's not a tightness. There's a slight effort to return to the experience of the physical form from out of the thinking activity. But it should entail no aggression against the thinking activity. The, making sense? Meditation should yeah. not have, shouldn't have an element of struggle in it. It should have the removal of struggle from your being. In order to do that, it's very humbling because when you see the content of the mind, Pretty, you, you don't want the police to get hold of it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Clear that browser history. <laughs> but yeah, people, you know, to to accept to accept yourself as you are is difficult for people. They have old wounds that they're angry about. They have old things, and they don't know, you know. They don't see how they're hurting themselves. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's not to their benefit to spend their whole lives grieving about something that happened or angry about something that happened. The stay here is temporary, and the mind creates the the quality of the stay. So, if you want to fix old wounds, you have to fix them in the mind. And usually the fixing activity is forgiveness. Mm. Forgiveness and acceptance. Mm. 
but but not cutting cutting do surgical removal of the uncomfortable past it's not that i i think it, in the old text <clears throat> i think it was bodhidharma who said something about learning how to accept the unacceptable through the wisdom of karma everything had to be the way it was good bad is just the mind's ego based response but things just are as they are maybe t- tibetan or buddhist term suchness you know things are just the way they are that's all hard to follow that with words. <laughs> Call me later. To <laughs> 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 me, you know, what you've what you've been discussing it, it kind of brings me back to thinking about that initial experience that you had of, of just realizing, you know, there's something more, there's something more than this, like the sense of identity that fits into our conceptual mind. Um, and I, I know you've written about, you know, the mind that kind of makes a, the lit to do list and kind of gets us through our daily chores. And then the mind, it's not that the mind that's the knower. Um, could you, could you say something about that? Or, you know, I don't want to make them separate minds, but how do you understand that? How do you try and teach that at this point? The mind has two functions. One that creates the universe and one that knows the creation of the universe. Mm. And we, we are born with five skandhas, is that a, you know, and one of them is thinking. And the skandhas, for those who are not familiar, are the five like constituents of what we think of as a self um, in Buddhist thought. That's beautiful. <laughs> so the thinking activity, or the first skanda, consciousness, but not the pure consciousness, that consciousness constructs itself on a foundation of I am the body. That's how first thought is the thought that was put in when you were born. Mm -hmm. You are Claire. And then the mind, every functioning of the mind after that is based on Claire. I am Claire. This is what I am. And that's, that's how it builds up this very strong, fear of death too because the claire thing is temporary the david thing is temporary but the mind sees it as the ultimate truth okay so so it's and then there's the mind that is aware of all of that heart sutra yeah 
mind sees that all the five skandhas are empty. There's no nobody living inside the five skandha. Yeah. I'm sitting in a cold spot here, so every time I drink something hot, it makes me feel good. Excuse me. <laughs> what are we talking about? Mind, two levels of mind. So you could call one consciousness and one mind. But, you know, for the experience is not that you become something different when you, when the mind awakens, the mind awakens and says, wow, I've been calling myself a body. I am the mind. And, and you know, it's not much difference from the whole Bible. I am that I am, and I am, I am. It's teaching the self to become aware of itself. But once you put it in a religion, whew. <laughs> Did you, did you enjoy the epilogue in the book? Yeah, I don't know if you remember the epilogue. Please tell it to us. Or... That, that was my parting shot at religion. <laughs> <laughs> I think if Tolstoy could do it, I could do it. Anyway, <laughs> but, you know, it's just sad to see the betrayal of the most beautiful into greed and ridiculous ideologies. But that's the way it goes. Yeah. In Buddhist texts, there's so many, at least in, you know, Tibetan texts <laughs> I'm familiar with, there's so many descriptions of like reality itself as beyond words, you know, beyond concepts. And yet we use these words and concepts. <laughs> And it's almost inevitable that we end up getting stuck on the words and concepts. And, you know, it builds like a wall between the living experience and the spiritual tradition sometimes. And so, so where, where is the world of silence? Where is that? It's always with us. But it's obscured by thought. So it's always the intimate experience of a sense organ or the experience of the body, which is one of the skandhas to fifth problem. <clears throat> it's not a different mind. It's just liberated from the five skandhas. That's what liberation is liberated from the notion that the self resides <clears throat> where the self resides, mistaken idea of where self resides. I want to like just underscore that, you know, we've been talking about the difference between sort of this lived experience of, I don't know, reality itself is one way we express in the Tibetan tradition versus ideas about it. And I think sometimes people hear about, you know, the idea of no self or of emptiness and they think there's a self and my job in Dharma practice is to like take it apart. And, and actually, you know, the traditional metaphor is it's like looking at a, a coil of, of garden rope or I, I think of it as like a garden hose. Cause I've had that experience of seeing a garden hose and thinking, Oh my God, a snake. After I got back from Thailand where there are tons of snakes, you know, and, and the path is not 
to like deconstruct that snake and make it a garden hose, the path is to realize there was never a snake. <laughs> the yeah. path really in Mahayana Buddhism is to realize ultimately there's not a garden hose either. <laughs> yeah, but but what you've now what you've now described is the gradual and the right. instant. Right. Path. What it's not instant. What's the word? Graduate. Sudden. Some, sometimes it's sudden changing. enlightenment gradual yeah. yeah gradual is deconstructing the hose right. sudden is it's a hose <laughs> <Right. laughs> hello <laughs> but it's not easy to see and you have to cross across the fear of death you know it's not i, I don't know i think i mentioned it's just such a nice story, that, but I, I've mentioned it too many times so that when I hear it, I said, no, it's not empowered anymore. <laughs> but but I, I had a friend who I hadn't seen in about eight years. He was uh, kind of a Dharma buddy, but more hippie buddy. And um, he was in a horrific pileup on the highway. Uh, it was a f five cars jammed, trucks, cars jammed together. And his body was just crushed. And he had bones piercing through his skin and he had flesh hanging off him. And they came and told him, we can't get you out for an hour. <laughs> and so this horrible thing. He was telling me the, what happened. And then he said he remembered a teaching that he had once heard, <clears throat> that when you're in extreme pain, move towards it, not away from it. Because you can't get away from it. Move towards it. So he moved towards it. And he was catapulted out of the body. He felt like he was now in the car, seeing his body in the car. And then the pain would bring him back. And then he tried to, he did that for an hour and then passed out. And they pulled him from the car. And he was in the hospital. They thought he might never survive or they thought he might be. And he ended up completely surviving. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> With his body looks like some zipper shop, you know, just covered with surgeries. And then, and then he came to see me because he wanted to share the moment. And he said this thing to me that stunning thing. He said, before that happened, I would have paid a billion dollars for that not to happen. Mm. And after it happened, I wouldn't accept a billion dollars for it not to happen. Wow. Mm. Wow. What an amazing teaching. Now he's back surfing. <laughs> he 
So you, you live in the afterglow, and then if you don't have something, you know, a system that... But he is beautiful. Beautiful. I mean, I'm not saying surfing. He was. He bodies, he's a body surfer. He lives in Santa Cruz. But it, what's left of it? <laughs> and, <laughs> and we stay in touch every now and then. I, I know our time, well, I'm going to say our time is running short. Time's not running short. I have an arbitrary idea of, you know, how much of your of time. 11.30. I, my, ne my next appointment is to be at the hospital for a, a quarterly blood test. It's just routine quarterly blood tests because of a transplant. They check that the levels of everything are fine. We're actually switching to semi-annually. So yeah. that's that's not timed either. You just walk in and wait for your turn. I'm kind of just reflecting back on, you know, our chat together, some of the beautiful things you've written. Um, and just the title of your book, you know, A Temporary Affair, and it feels like one of my big interests in life, in Dharma practice, etc., is, you know, I want to say the death process, but like really the death process literally and metaphorically in the sense of, you know, the stripping down of everything we think we are so that something else emerges. And um, it just really feels like to me that's been the the sort of the undercurrent of this whole conversation, and um, I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate your time and you know sharing your wisdom with me and with everyone who gets to listen to this conversation. Um, and I'm just wondering, is there anything you'd like to say before we close? Hi. <laughs> Thank you. And, and you should know in the course of your practice that death and awakening are the same. Beautiful. You know, seeing that you're not the body is the same as dying and wisdom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how could it be any other way? <laughs>